Welcome to Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire, and today my guest is Phil Taylor. Now, many of you may know him from his time on The Apprentice. I know him as the CEO of Carbon Theory. He's a passionate brand leader. He is a former precision engineer. He's got marketing skills and a great story that he's going to share with each and every one of you, leading him from where he started to making soap in his kitchen, now to taking over the world with Carbon Theory. So without further ado, my chat with Philip Taylor. Hey, Phil, how's it going today? Hi, John. I'm good. Experiencing a little bit of a heat wave in London at the moment, so um, it's a little bit hot, but other than that, all positive. All things are good. You know, you can't complain. Heat wave, cool wave. As long as there's a wave <laughs> and you're around to see it, you're gold. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So you are the CEO of Carbon Theory. That's correct, yes. A brand leader in skincare. Where does something like that start? I mean, I know that there's a lot of ground to cover, but, you know, one does not just wake up when they're a teenager and say, I'm going to be the CEO of a skincare company. <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, man, do you know something? It's actually quite a long, convoluted story. I've got the, sort of a very weird and diverse history in sort of my uh, professional career. But um, I guess, if I'm honest with you, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a rock star. I mean, who didn't, right? Exactly, exactly. I was a big Oasis fan. When I was sort of 14 and 15 and Liam Gallagher was the main man, I was just like, that's what I want to be. So I did have a band, actually. We had an incredible band called Daytona Rain. Unfortunately, we didn't make the cut, but at least I had a crack at it. Where I grew up in the northeast of England, that sort of dictated a little bit about what you could do as a career. In the northeast, it's a very industrialized area in terms of professional roles. The mining towns that I grew up in, I grew up in a small town called Spennymoor, and then shortly after that, a town called West Cornforth, which has the illustrious nickname of Doggy, and nobody knows why. <laughs> Actually, uh, going to school was a really strange thing, because when I was at comprehensive school, university was never even mentioned. It wasn't even a conversation. It didn't seem that was something that was feasible, I guess, you know, from somebody um, from my background. So out of that, I had a few friends that worked in engineering and uh, worked in the manufacturing sector locally. And that seemed like a great career choice. I've always been interested in, you know, products and how things are assembled and put things together. And so I applied for an engineering apprenticeship. And fortunately, I got one at a company called Presswork Metals, which was based in a small town called Newton Aircliffe. It was in the automotive sector and it was a five-year apprenticeship. You know, when you work in those environments, and particularly if you're thinking about a day like this, 30 degrees in a, in a hot, dark factory, which is heavily mechanized, it's noisy. You know, you certainly appreciate what hard work is and understand what it is to really, really graft, as they say. And um, that was a really, really good foundation for me. And I was in the industry for five or six years. And then, uh, you know, I've always sort of thought of myself as someone who was, you know, a bit slightly charismatic and could sell things. And um, I, I look for an opportunity in sales. And beyond that, I actually went into work in a state agency selling property. And I moved into a business called Robinson's Chartered Surveyors. And I met a guy called George Robinson, who was the founder of Robinson's Charts of Beers, who was an incredibly inspiring bloke because his father was a miner. And he'd gone out there and he'd managed to get his uh, civilian qualifications and he set up this great firm and he had the biggest family residential property agency in the Northeast. And actually, when I went for the job, he didn't actually give us the job. He said he couldn't understand how I could go from engineering into sales. And I got the letter of rejection. So I picked the phone up and I asked to speak to him. And he didn't come to the phone, but I spoke to his secretary and I just said, look, I said, I can't understand this. You know, I thought that I had a great interview and I think you should really give us a shot. And then I got a call the next day to say you can start on Monday. And that honestly, I think that was a real turning point for me. I think it was the ability to have the confidence in picking the phone up and believing in yourself to go out and tell someone they made a mistake and you could do a great job. And that's what really, um, you know, got me into the sort of path I'm on now, which effectively is selling. 
You know, that's interesting because a lot of people start out in certain industries that have little or nothing to do directly with the industries that they end up in. In fact, you know, I come from a similar background where I worked in the service industry for many, many years. And when I went to go and get a management job and to go work corporate, I was getting turned down left and right because people could not imagine corporate management and how it would work against restaurant and bar management where they seem like they're two different animals, but they're one and the same. I mean, you're managing people and you're, you're working with different personalities and diverse personalities. And in the end of the day, you're just trying to get the team to play nice together. So for you, how did you find the experience of pivoting from working in engineering to moving on to sales? Do you know something? If I'm honest with you, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I found the transition fairly easy. And um, I think I really flourished quite quickly when I was working in the George's business and very quickly sort of excelled through the ranks. And I think it was about being personality. And I think this, this notion about nice guys finish last, I don't believe that for a second. You know, I think particularly when you're selling a service to somebody or a product to somebody, you've got to be a nice guy. And I think that goes across the board, whether that's working with your suppliers, whether it's working with your team. So for me, it came quite naturally. I'd worked with George for, you know, five years, six years, and I was looking for that next step. And one night I went home and I was sat watching the TV and this TV show came on called The Apprentice, which obviously was huge in the US with Mr. Trump, if we need to mention him. Don't say his name three times or he'll appear like Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I saw this TV show and these idiots running around the marketplace trying to sell fish. And I was like, they are so stupid. I could do that. <laughs> and like everybody says that. So I applied to the TV show. And I remember sort of two weeks later getting a, an interview to go down to um, Liverpool and go meet the TV producers and it went well and it snowballed. And then so within five weeks, I got the invite to come on the show, which was just mad. And it was like 30,000 people had applied for it. But what I did actually realize through the uh, sort of process very quickly is that it wasn't really about who was the most intelligent. It wasn't about who had the best qualifications. It was about personality. And you knew that they were looking for personality on the show. So that was something that, you know, you knew you had to give them as well as like sort of trying to act appropriately, I guess, in a business environment. But that's impossible when you're working with those people on The Apprentice. And, you know, it's, it's an incredibly difficult, difficult experience. The whole thing's set up for you to fail because that's what's funny. When cocksure people fall flat on the face, that's what's funny. And that's what the audience want to see. Yeah, that's exactly what people pay to see. Exactly. I think I lasted for about eight weeks before I became incredibly frustrated with the whole thing. And if I'm honest with you, I lost interest in it. And it was a huge relief to be out of it. So you lost interest in it. And I mean, eight weeks is a long time to be working on a TV show that is focused on you working. Do you feel like getting fired from The Apprentice is kind of like a badge of honor, even more so than winning The Apprentice? <laughs> I guess so. One thing I did come away with that was I was slightly memorable. I came up with this character for this serial called Pantsman. And for like two years after, people used to shout Pantsman at me in the street. And the thing was, it was a concept around a superhero character that if you didn't eat your cereal in the morning, you put your clothes on back to front. And I always remember the adverts that make people laugh. And um, that was one of those things. And if you ask anybody today, they'll still call me Pantsman, but they never remember the advert that actually won. They always remember the one I thought of. That was always interesting to me. But I don't know what I think, so I think, you know, getting fired it was fine i think i'm the only person to sort of sit there and say this is a joke at the end of the firing something i should probably be slightly embarrassed about but i don't think i am i wouldn't be i mean that's the thing anytime someone gets fired on the apprentice they always go on to bigger and better things i could not tell you who's won and what the winners have done but the losers 
that's where the character comes in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to pick yourself up, you know, you're a bit of an underdog. But like I said, I think one of the important things is that I came out of it and a lot of people seem to like us off the back of it. A lot of people didn't, but, you know, I've got that sort of personality, I guess. And what people don't understand is, is that in that environment, everything is sort of magnified like a hundred times. You're sleep deprived. You haven't eaten anything. You've got to ask to go to the toilet. You haven't spoken to your family in weeks. Oh, it's like being at boarding school. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, people are very, very different on the show than they are in real life. But, hey, you know, that's the way it is. So what was your main takeaway from The Apprentice? Like, what did you really learn about yourself? And what did you learn to apply to business from working on a show like The Apprentice? I think what The Apprentice taught me um, absolutely categorically was how to get a product to market and how you could do it on a budget. And that, you know, you don't necessarily need 50,000 pounds or 100,000 pounds to get a product off the ground. Whilst it's sort of, um, they do make it sort of easy for you and the budget's on them. It, it just proved to me that, you know, there are people out there that can assist in, in supporting you in doing this. And um, I think looking at that, that really sort of put a fire in my belly to get out there and start evaluating the market and look at, you know, how we can achieve something. As much as I always say, you know, it was an incredibly difficult experience. I, I did actually hate parts of it. It was the best thing that I ever did because it introduced me to London. Like I say, I, I moved down from the Northeast. I've been down here for sort of 10 years now. It's the most incredible city. And if I'm honest with you, you know, London provides so many opportunities to do entrepreneurial things that I don't think you get in many other parts of the country, which is a shame. And you know what? That is the difference between the city life and life off in the countryside and other parts of countries where people just move a different way. They don't necessarily work any harder or work any smarter than people in other parts of the regions. It's just there's a vibe. There's an energy. It fosters creativity. And it's a do or die kind of place. So leaving The Apprentice, learning these lessons, is that what led you to Carbon Theory? In between The Apprentice and the launch of Carbon, which I think was probably about eight years, I worked for a sports agency, which was always something I always wanted to do. I also went to work for Westfield, which was, the, I don't know if you know, the big mall company. I live in New Jersey. We are the land of shopping malls. We are very well versed in Westfield. <laughs> so I went for Westfield and they're an amazing company. But in between working for both of these businesses, in the background, I was just sort of looking at side hustles, tinkering away, trying to get bits off the ground. I think at one point I was looking at an energy drink, which is a thing, and all sorts of different weird and wonderful. I think one time I was trying to get an underwear brand off the ground. It took me a while to get it right, but I think, you know, that's normal. You know, you're not going to get everything right the first time. And everything was a learning curve. And it was around about three years ago, three and a half years ago, where I had the concept for carbon. And as a teenager, I'd suffered with breakouts. And, you know, the last thing you want when you go into the uh, college disco, the school disco, is to have that big pimple on your forehead. And then... In more recent times, I've noticed in the media the rise of articles around breakouts and acne, particularly about young people heading straight to the doctor to pick up these sort of fairly aggressive medications. And before they even sort of evaluate, they're just looking at a simple solution for the skin. And, you know, the inspiration came from that was why can't we just have something that just gets your skin as clean as possible, that's super affordable, that looks super clinical and is available to a mainstream audience via a huge retailer. That's where the inspiration came from. And that in itself is an interesting pivot because you started out working in steel. Yeah. And then you're moving on to skincare. <laughs> What's the connection there? Like, because that's a very different business. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot of merits you can take away from sort of the engineering background and, and how you sort of apply that for skincare. I mean, there's many brands out there. I mean, I'm not sure how many founders these days can say, you know, they still go out there and started the product at home. But um, that's exactly what I did. I went online. I had the idea around the product being um, 
T-Triol, which T-Triol was what I used to use on my face as a kid um, when I had bad breakouts. And then charcoal was this sort of hip new ingredient that was out. It looks cool. It's black and a lot of charcoal and a lot of tea tree oil and a lot of soap base and a lot of shea butter. And I remember I had it delivered to uh, the office at work and um, I had it in a backpack and I went to the pub on the evening and the guys at the pub were like, what have you got in your bag? And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to make some soap at home. And they were like, you're a moron. You're a complete moron. <laughs> they thought it was hilarious. And I've been known for having fads, so I didn't blame them. I mean, I've been into everything. I mean, skateboarding, BMX, golf, rock climbing, jazz trumpet, you name it. I've tried it all. And now it was soap making. So I went home and I watched some YouTube videos on how to make soap. And I started sort of cooking it up in the kitchen, sort of breaking bad style. <laughs> and if I'm honest with you, it isn't that much fun. It's dangerous for one thing because you're creating lye and it starts cooking away and it creates heat and energy. And then it's incredibly messy, especially when you mess around with charcoal. I, we had a beautiful resin sink, which I ruined. Yeah, well, what we managed to achieve, you know, I managed to cook up these bars of soap. And they came out and they looked beautiful. And I started passing them around friends. And these were like, these are really, really cool. I was like, all right, how do we take this to the next level? But I think that's, you know, from an engineering perspective, doing that and understanding, you know, ingredients and, you know, packaging and dimensions of packaging and applying that in the manufacturing process, it all helps to get that product to market faster than anybody else. So through that, I actually approached a company up in Glasgow called Soapworks, which was set up by Anita Roddick, who founded The Body Shop. Um, it was set up as a social enterprise. And, you know, soap by its very essence, soap bars and cleansing bars hadn't been particularly popular over the last 10, 15 years because people had shifted to liquid soap. And there's this concept from like millennials where they think that soap's potentially dirty because you sort of leave it on the side of the sink. And as part of the battle to counteract that, that's why I created the resealable pouch for the initial product to go in. So that was something that they could place the bar back in after use, kept it sterile, kept it hygienic, and you could use it for travel as well. And that was the sort of first in the market, particularly for cleansing bars. And it also stands as a sort of a mini billboard on the shelf in the stores, which is great. But through Soapworks, they helped me develop a commercial formulation and very kindly did a free of charge, which I probably shouldn't say because everyone would be knocking on the door. But through that, I bought 200 samples for 200 pounds. And these are the samples that I pitched to Boots. And Boots UK, for those who might not be familiar, is Europe's biggest pharmacy. That's correct, yeah. So um, we started in Boots in um, 180 stores on a category called Beauty Finds. At this point, I'd actually joined forces with my business partner, Stu Meldrum. He's formerly of ASOS, the big clothing retailer. Oh, I've definitely bought some clothes from ASOS, yes. Absolutely. He also worked with Lad Bible as well. It's a big, big media house. They have a lot of content channels based across Facebook and Instagram. And meeting up with Stu, he was able to sort of help us shape the brand identity and then more importantly, get us some beautiful visuals that we could present to Boots. So very nicely, he used to sneak us into ASOS's office on an evening and we used to shoot the photos in there, which is pretty naughty. But yeah, so we got to this point where we had the product and went to Boots and we presented it to Boots and Boots just said, you know, we think it's a really, really strong concept. We'd love to give it a go. So we launched into Boots in February 2018 and we launched in 180 stores and we sort of had fairly moderate sales for the first sort of couple of months. But what we noticed was something sort of magic was happening is that the guys that were buying the soap, they started to contact us on Instagram and say, like, look, look at what you've done to my skin. You've changed my skin. You know, these kids that were suffering with sort of really bad breakouts had these incredible transformations. Now, I'll be honest with you. I did not for one second think the product could do what it does. I thought it would get your skin clean. I didn't think it would completely transform people's acne and blemishes. That became a magic moment for us because we were working with Shah who helped us out with our PR at the time. We got a piece that was presented to the Daily Mail. This 
piece went out online and I was still working at Westfield at the time. And I used to have all of the soap under the desk at Westfield, <laughs> which I used to get in trouble for. But to be fair, they were very, very good people at Westfield. They were very, very understanding. And every time I got an order, I used to walk down to the post office and put it in the post. On average, I probably get around 10 orders online every day. All of a sudden, my phone started buzzing and um, I had 10 orders before lunch. And I went, what's going on here? This is crazy. And then we'd heard that the Daily Mail piece had gone out. And um, at the end of the day, I had 3,000 orders on before, before we had to shut the website. And quit your day job. Exactly. And to be fair, I think I've had a notice on the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how many people get to those moments, but it was like being in a movie. You sat there and this thing you'd worked so hard towards. And there was sleepless nights. There was nights where I felt like crying. I didn't know what I got myself into. And then this magic moment just happened. And the whole thing just blew up. And Boots sold three months worth of stock in three hours as well. That's brilliant. So that was the blow up moment for us. And it's like I said, we've been very, very fortunate that we've had that. I'm a big believer in you do make your own look, but that was truly something phenomenal. And I think it's very rare that that happens these days. But yeah, that was a truly, truly magic moment. And, and then ever since then, the trajectory of the brands has been on and up. And sometimes it's difficult for me to comprehend, but you know, we just keep trying to produce you know, quality stuff and um, it seems to be doing the trick. And you since expanded the business because I know they're selling it at Ulta in the United States. And you've also reached Australia's price line. Yeah, that's correct. With Boots, again, we launched in 180 stores. We're now in 1,300 stores. Our full line all across the country. Our cleansing bars consistently in the top 10 of the best-selling skincare products of Boots. So we had the adventure out to the U.S., which, I mean, you just imagine, you know, sort of doing this a couple of years ago, you know, to think that you know, we were out there meeting Walmart and CVS and all these guys down in Arkansas, Chicago, and then again, spending a lot of time in New York. But we realized that Ulta was the best retail channel for us. It's a real, true beauty destination where consumers go to discover new brands. And they've given us an incredible launch platform. We've been part of their Sparked platform, which is for up-and-coming brands that have sort of done well on social. And we sold out again the first week. And likewise, with Priceline in Australia, I mean, I got to spend some time out in Sydney with Priceline. And again, another phenomenal retailer. Again, very much like Boots. We know where our audience is. And we launched in the price line and we, I think we did the whole range sold out within a week. And we sold four months worth of forecast in three weeks, which presents its own challenges, but it's good challenges. It's incredible how the brand's been adopted globally now. You know, we generally consider ourselves, you know, a global brand. And um, we seem to be outperforming some of the real mainstays in the category because people are looking for something new. You know, if you've got blemish and acne prone skin, people want something new that looks clinical, clean and does the job. And that's what we're presenting to them. I mean, it really is a universal problem, right? Everybody gets acne. Absolutely, absolutely. And everyone can identify with that. You know, and I think if you do something that's affordable, I mean, I would cleanse and buy. I think it's $10 in the US and it'll last you three months. And I always say this, if I'm a kid down in sort of Idaho somewhere with breakouts and blemishes and, you know, I'm looking for something that can help. What a thing to have, you know, it's cost effective and it works. What is next for Carbon Theory? Yeah, so next for Carbon, we want to continue expanding our range into the US with potentially more retailers. We're very much looking at Asia. China presents a huge opportunity for us. Also, we're very, very interested in Japan. We think they've got um, incredible skincare consumers out there who are looking for exciting new products, and we think we can present them something really, really interesting. We just want to get the brand out there to as many people as possible, help as many people's skin issues as possible in a really cost-effective manner. And um, you know, that's what we've always aimed to do, and we think we can achieve that. Well, that's amazing. Now, from this conversation, pretty much what I am gathering about you is that you never had a straight path. And a lot of people, I know your friends would rib you about how you were into different kinds of fads, but you know, they say fortune favors the bold. 
And the path that you have been on may not have been a traditional path, but you've always dipped your toe into different things to find what you liked and you forged your own way. What would you say to a younger person who's listening to this show or maybe even an older person who's looking to make that change and to try something different? There's a term that we use over here is where you've got to back yourself. You really have to back yourself. And if I'm honest with you, the amount of people that told me that carbon was a stupid idea and that people would never wash the face with soap again, you know, if I had listened to them, then we wouldn't be on this conversation. So I think genuinely, if you believe in something and you think you've got a great idea, you know, I really encourage you to go for it. Put yourself out there. Don't be worried about spending lots of money. If the idea is right, it'll find its own way. You don't need to spend a lot of money. But yeah, just absolutely back yourself, get yourself out there and make it happen. Because if you don't do it, somebody else will. Excellent. Phil, thanks so much for joining us today. Been an absolute pleasure. And um, I look forward to hopefully catching up soon and uh, tell you some more interesting tales about my journey. Thanks to Phil for coming on the show today. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in for another episode of Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire. And remember, if your day job's not your dream job, keep hustling. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.